Turn back in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. When the world looks at the church, what do they see? Do they see war, violence, and peace? When the world looks at the church, what do they see? Do they see bitterness, envy, and greed? When the world looks at the church, what do they see? Do they see compassion, mercy, and grace? According to the media, it's too often the case that Christians are not known for what they are for, but rather what they are against. Christians are not known for their love of one another, according to the media. And sometimes the criticisms are unjustified. Unfortunately, at other times, we are guilty as charged. Recent research by Gabe Loins and uh, David Kinneman reveals we often are seen by the world as hyper-political, out-of-touch, pushy in our beliefs, and arrogant. In particular, when viewed by young Americans who do not attend church, 87% would say we are judgmental, 85% would say we are hypocritical, and 70% would say we are insensitive to others. Again, some of this we expect because our beliefs are countercultural. We don't want to water down the truth to appease the lost world, but is the love of Christ evident? Is it radiant? so that others may see it. Carl Truman, a renowned biblical scholar from Grove City College, states of our modern day and the modern Christian um, social media world, he says this about it, how Christians interact on social media with one another. Christians seem united only in their apparent belief that a posture of righteous indignation and demands for extreme sanctions against those who hold different opinions are essential parts of courageous Christian discipleship. And again, he's talking about how Christians interact with one another. In today's social media Christianity, hatred is love and slander is sanctification. And while it's not the goal of this message nor of the text to get the unsaved world to view Christians in a positive light, one can concur that it will aid in our evangelistic outreach. In the first three centuries after the resurrection of Jesus, Christians were persecuted more than any other religious groups because they refused to honor the gods of their society or worship the emperor. They were seen as exclusive, narrow, and a threat to the social order. And yet, despite all of this, Christianity exploded during this time. Why? Why? One word. Love. Love. People were attracted to the love of Christians. Larry Hutado explores this impact in his book, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? It was the love of Christians that motivated people to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Here's the thing that was unique about Christians during this time. There was no partiality between men and women, old and young, People from various ethnic groups and social backgrounds were all united together. Love. There was forgiveness and reconciliation, despite the fact that they were being persecuted, imprisoned, and even killed. They taught forgiveness and withheld retaliation. 
love. They showed hospitality to the poor and suffering. During the urban plagues, it was expected that one would flee from your community. You would even flee from your family members. It was expected you would get as far as possible. But Christians, because of Christ's love, stayed and took care of the sick and the weak and the vulnerable, even at the cost of their own lives. Also, they were a community that cared about the sanctity of life. If you know, in um, ancient Greco-Roman world, when you wanted to get rid of a child, they would have unwanted infants that were literally thrown on trash heaps and Christians would be the ones to go and collect those babies and raise them as their own. It was because the early church didn't fit in with the surrounding culture and they challenged them by their love that Christianity had a dramatic impact on society and explosive growth. And we should seek this today. We live in a post-Christian America. We are exiles now. As exiles, the love of Christ should personify us. That is why what I'm trying to establish today is that our vertical love that God has for us demands that we horizontally love one another. Pastor Walker has been going through 1 John through this summer, and this is the third time in this epistle that John appeals to the subject of love. He first mentions it in chapter 2, verse 7 through 11, where it's given as an indicator of someone who's walking in light. The next occurrence is in chapter 3, verse 10 through 24, and he says that the one who loves shows they are a child of God. This third and final occurrence in our text today shows just how important love is for Christians. It is an identity marker. John loves the believers, and he challenges them to love others as well. He wants to make sure that we understand that love is not an option. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be a God lover and a people lover. Look at our text in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. How is love defined? Well, in our society, human love is defined and described as a response to something desirable in a situation or the object or that person. For example, I love her because she's beautiful, or I love him because he's handsome, or I love her because she is smart, or I love him because he is rich. Human love is usually responsive love. The love that God has implanted in our hearts is different. It's agape love. It creates value in the subject whether there is any intrinsic value there. It says this, I love you because I love you. I love you because I love you. God's love is more than emotion or goodwill. It flows from its nature. And thus when John charges us to love, he's saying that now we have supernatural ability to sacrifice, to esteem, and care for others even if our, in our own human estimation, they are not worthy. That word for love that we see, it's agape, and pastor has talked about it. It dominates 1 John verse 4 through 7 through 5, 3. It appears over 30 times. Pastor Stephen Cole defines it as this, a self-sacrificing, caring commitment 
that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the loved one. John starts off by saying, loved ones, let us love one another. And notice he includes himself in this command. The source of love is from God, and those who love have been born of God. John's point in verse 7 is to say that the new birth, the regeneration, the impartation of new life, God's nature in us, and this new birth gives us the ability to love others. Look at verse 12 with me. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. When you and I were born again, God himself is imparted to you. He dwells in you and his love now flows through you. His aim is that the love, his love would be perfected in our lives. We would have supernatural power and ability to do this. I want you to get this because this is very important. We don't love based off of only imitation. Okay, I see that God loves me, therefore I love. No, this is very important to understand. We love because it's been imparted in us. We have the ability to love, despite the fact when we think we don't, because God's love dwells within us through the Spirit of God. Not just imitation, but it's been imparted in us. We can now love the unlovable, forgive the unforgivable, be gracious to the ungrateful because his love dwells within us. We who are loved are exhorted to love, and when we have difficulty being patient with that toddler in nursery, upset by changes happening in the church, God's heart has been imparted to us, and we need to remind ourselves that we have the capacity to love. Since God is love, those who are transformed by the gospel have the power to become loving people, and this is what this church needs and our world needs. You see, God has established his church to carry out his mission to reconcile the world to himself, and this will be demonstrated by our love for him and our love for one another, and it's implanted in us. We have the ability now to be patient, the ability to be kind. We have the ability to seek the best for others, to let love cover a multitude of sin. We can stay united when the world is divided and we can bear one another's burdens because God's love is in us. The love of God is flowing in our hearts right now and it must flow out to others. That's what the world needs to see. Look at me at verse 8, with me at verse 8. The same idea is stated, but just stated in a negative turn. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 8 is saying that a person can't come into a real relationship with a loving God without being transformed into a loving person. The false teachers in that day claimed to know God in a secret and deeper sense, but John is saying that they don't know God at all, that they are not born again because they don't practice biblical love. Their teaching and their behavior was self-promotion. It wasn't about Christ. That word knows has the meaning of having an intimate relationship with God. It's more than knowing facts. It's more than knowing doctrine. It's more than knowing teaching. It's knowing that we are in a right relationship with God. 
and we are rightly related to him, it means now we can reflect him. No one can come into relationship with the living God and their life not be transformed by it. Think of it. The spirit of the living God that has resurrected us from the dead lives inside of us and it changes everything. Whoever God indwells will reflect his character. And John's main application here is that children take on the characteristics of their parent. We would take on the characteristics of our father. My kids are a reflection of my wife and I. Layla is definitely a reflection of Amanda. Patient, kind, tender, uh, great leader with her brothers, just taking so much care of them. My boys, sadly, are a great reflection of me. Rambunctious, wild, daredevils. If you look at Amari, he has a brush burn scar on his face. I have so many scars myself. We are reflections. Children are supposed to be reflections of their parents. More so, we're supposed to be a reflection of our Heavenly Father because He's indwelt in us. We must take this to heart in a serious way. There are many evangelical churches that claim to be born again, but they do not love one another. They don't make an effort to do this. They are angry, unkind, impatient, abusive in their speech self-centered in their daily lives and judgmental to others. They spread malicious gossip with great delight. They are defensive if you try to point out any of these issues. Just a couple years ago, I had to get off social media because I'm just wondering, how in the world can Christians talk like this to one another? How can we do this? How can we demean someone that's made in the image of God, who we say is our brother and sister in Christ? This must not be. You see, because God dwells within us, so it must change everything. How is this vertical love of God revealed? It's revealed by the sending of his son. Look with me in verse 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's one thing to talk about love. It's something else to show love. And God doesn't just do talking. He doesn't just say it. He doesn't just give us his word that declares it. He's an acting God. He's a serving God. He's a doing God. As I meet with hurting people in counseling, who have asked the question at times, does anyone love me? It breaks my heart because they've been abandoned, abused, betrayed, mistreated, rejected. They think that everyone's finished with them, that they don't have anything good or redeemable in them. You may be like this today where you can barely ask the question, does anyone love me? Will I ever be loved? The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there is a resounding yes to this question. Through the Son, you are loved, secured, and protected. 
you will never be rejected by God. And notice this. He doesn't want to just sprinkle you with his love. He doesn't just want to dabble you with his love. He wants to shower you with his love, a cascading waterfall of his love and his mercy and grace. How do I know this to be true, that he wants to do this, overwhelm us with his love? He sent his son. How do I know this to be true? His son actually came. How do I know this? His son lived a perfect life in our place. How do I know this to be true? He was despised and rejected and ridiculed on our behalf. How do I know this to be true? Because he died in our place. The grave could not contain him. He broke out of that grave. He defeated Satan. He conquered death. And our redemption was won. Don't miss how important it is that God sent his son. Look again with me in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his son into the world that we might live through him. Dr. David Allen summarizes the impact of the sending of the son. First notice, it was God's love that caused the mission of sending his son. Look at the words God sent. If there is going to be reconciliation between God and man, you would think that the offender should be the one to initiate it, not the offended party. After all, the one that caused the problem should take the initiative. Suppose today you and I are exiting the church, but I am in a rush, and not only do I bump into you, I step on your toe and I run out. Um, and I don't say, oh, excuse me, sorry, but actually you say, Pastor Ari, I'm so sorry that you bumped into me. Um, can you please forgive me? What? That doesn't make any sense. No, I'm the one that's supposed to pause and to ask for your forgiveness. Do you understand this? The offended party goes up and takes the initiative to offer forgiveness. This is Jesus. He was the one that came on our behalf. He was the offended party, but he took the initiative to start the reconciliation process. Second notice, whom God sent? His one and only son. He did not send Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. He didn't send King David. He didn't send any of the prophets. He didn't send an angel or one of his angel armies. He sent his one and only son whom he loved. Third, the greatness of God's love is revealed in the purpose of sending his son. Notice, so that we might live through him. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Our only hope of eternal life is forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God through his son. We were in rebellion against the loving creator, and yet God sent his son. We weren't looking for God, and we even hated him, and yet God sent his son. His son came into enemy territory and a world of sinners on a seek and search and rescue mission. 
He came looking for us even when we were not looking for him. Fourth, the sending of the Son, the greatness of God's love is demonstrated by its cause. God sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is propitiation all about? One scholar says this, it means to satisfy God's justice and wrath toward our sin. His love didn't just brush aside our sin because his holiness and his justice would have been compromised. Rather, his love compelled God to send his son who bore the penalty that we rightly deserved. The initiative was totally with God. He didn't wait until we showed promise. In fact, the Bible says that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners. You get that? Still sinners. Christ died for us. We understand now this horizontal love that God has for us. And it's not just a horizontal love that we should have based off that we have and we're supposed to imitate. It's been implanted in us. The new birth, the regeneration. Now we have the ability to horizontally love one another. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Christian Standard Version says this, if God loves us in this way, we must love one another. If God loves us in this way, and he does, just look at the cross, then we ought naturally, out of gospel gratitude and connection to the very source of love, love one another. We can't love as we ought until we understand that God has loved us. And we have seen that the willingness of the Father to send his Son is our motivation. And the indwelling of the Spirit gives us the ability. Notice this word again in verse 11. We ought to love one another. It is an obligation. Some Christians view loving one another as optional. Love isn't optional. It's mandated by God. Our love for others is to be predicated on his love for us, not on us liking someone. Our love is fueled by the realization that God is devoting himself to us, so we must love one another in response. So the rest of the time, what I want to do is apply this passage here at Faith very specifically. What will this born-again love look like at Faith Baptist Church? One specific way, turn in your Bibles with me, the first John chapter three, verse 16. A couple of weeks ago, a pastor preached through this passage. It says this: "By this we know that He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has a world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. He says three things about love here that I want to take the rest of our time to explain. First, he says in verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. He's not saying that talk is unimportant. Oh, it is important to be encouraging. 
it's important for you all to be a Barnabas in someone's life, to come and encourage them through their walk, to inspire them to live for the King of kings and Lord of lords. But what he's saying is that we shouldn't just love and word and talk if we have the ability and opportunity to love with action. The love that he wants us to show is deed love. It's the get off your sofa, get in the car, and drive to the hospital deeds. It's the cancel the lunch plans and rush over to a member's house to watch their kids' deeds. It's to put the pan in the oven, make an extra meal, and go over and give it to someone who just got out of the hospital. Deeds, deeds, deeds. It's going over to that widow's house to mow their yard or shovel their snow in the winter. It's offering to drive children to school or appointments if they're busy. It's going to help someone with basic repairs in their home. This is the love that should personify us here at Faith Baptist Church. And the illustration that I've used, those examples, they have taken place. And I've witnessed them with my eyes. People loving one another. Just this past Sunday night, what an awesome opportunity to have over 70 people go to Bob Gottwald's house and sing. What a blessing it is to encourage one another through a difficult trial. Deeds, putting our love into action, not just in word, in actions. Verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That means that when a deed needs to be done and it's going to cost you a lot, you do it. Christ loved us by laying down his life for us. It was a long, horrible, agonizing death that he could have chosen to stop at any time. But he didn't. He kept choosing to persist. He kept choosing to go through with it. And we, in our love for one another, must be willing to suffer for one another. When we are serving and it gets hard and we feel like bailing out, we feel like we don't have the ability to do this anymore. Remember that his love is coursing through your veins and you have the ability to do this. And he laid down his life for us. So we must lay down our lives for others. Third, he says this will mean very practically that, verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The way that John has in mind is that if we have possessions and someone is in need of them, that we will hold our possessions so lightly that others may take of it because ultimately it's all God's. It's all his. We are only managers of his possessions. Everything we have is at his disposal. This is the type of love that should be seen in our lives. We must have a love that seeks the highest good for one another. For those of you that may be here today, though, and think that you are outside the love of God, please hear me clearly, very clearly. No one has ever sinned himself or herself beyond the love of God. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less than he loves you right now. I love how this is captured in the song 
that was a theme song for youth this summer during our teen week. And it's the song, Oh By God, by Davy Flowers. And it talks about our salvation. Here's how the lyrics of the song goes. I was buried beneath my rebellion, lost without hope of redemption, blind in my need of a savior. Oh, but God, crushed by the weight of my failure, living the lie that I created, digging my grave without knowing. Oh, but God, rich in mercy, how you love me too much to let me stay lost. My salvation sent from heaven, nailing my sin to a cross, oh, but God. That is the type of love that God has for us. And this is the type of love we are supposed to extend to others as well. He has loved us first. Therefore, we can love one another, sacrifice for one another, because God is love. Let's pray. Father, how good it is, Lord, just to be your child, to be your son. Lord, I pray today that you be with our church family, Lord. Um, you, you command us, you desire us to love one another, to show the world, Lord, that we are united by you. May our love for one another exceed even our expectations, Lord, because we love based on how you loved us and you have imparted your love in our hearts. Father, help us this day and for the rest of the week to care and to seek the best for one another. In your precious name, amen.